Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. As we wrap up our practice and teaching series on preaching the gospel, we kicked it off with a few teachings on a biblical theology of the gospel of Jesus over against what we called the four American gospels, which we put the language to of the evangelical gospel, the reformed gospel, the liberation gospel, and the prosperity gospel. Next, we laid out five kind of best practices for how to preach the gospel, or in that word we all hate, evangelize, in our kind of a cultural moment, all of which work together to generate a kind of flywheel. They are practice hospitality, find where God is already working and join him, bridge the cultural divides with alpha, do the stuff, as Darren said last week, meaning partner with the spirit of God and the manifestations of the spirit like prophecy and healing and so on. And finally, up on the docket for this morning is live in a way that begs the question, or in more blatant New Testament language, bear witness. To start, let's stand for the reading of scripture. And we do this week after week because what we are about to read is not just an interesting letter from an ancient Greco-Roman. It is, we believe, breathed out by God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, and God, we just open our heart to receive all that you have for us this morning. Come, Father. Come, Lord Jesus Christ. Come, Holy Spirit. Verse 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Take a seat. Let me introduce you to one of the great ones of the way. Her name was Perpetua, born in 182 AD to a wealthy family in Carthage or what is now Tunisia. Perpetua was one of many in the first century who became a Christiani in Latin or a Christian or Christ follower. When she was 22 years old, just after her marriage and the birth of her first child, the Roman emperor Septimius Severus made conversion to what people were just starting to call Christianity illegal. And a state-sanctioned genocide of Christians broke out across the Roman Empire and the Mediterranean world. It was bloody and lethal. Perpetua was arrested and put in jail, likely to make an example of a woman from a prominent family. All she had to do to go back to her husband and her infant child was just recant her claim that Jesus was Lord, pinch a little incense on the altar, and say instead, Caesar is Lord. That's it. Her father begged her to recant. He said, do not abandon me to the reproach of men. This is an honor-shame culture. You are bringing shame on our family. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother and your aunt. Think of your child who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. You will destroy all of us. Perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby. Can you imagine the decision? But she just kept saying over and over to the Roman magistrate, I am a Christian. 
I am a Christian. I am a Christian. In prison, she had a vision in the middle of the night. In it, there was a ladder reaching up to heaven with a dragon guarding the base. She moved past the dragon and up the ladder and reached the top, and there was this beautiful, massive garden. And at the center of the garden was a tall, gray-haired man dressed like a shepherd, surrounded by thousands of men and women and children dressed in white. He gave her a piece of cheese, which was sweet to her mouth, and he said, welcome, my child. She woke up and realized that she was going to die, but from that moment on, she was full of peace. The Acts of the Christian Martyrs, a third century writing, tells her story like this. The day of their victory dawned, and they marched from the prison to the amphitheater joyfully, as though they were going to heaven with calm faces, trembling, if at all, with joy rather than with fear. Perpetua went along with shining countenance and calm step. She began to sing a psalm. She screamed as she was struck on the bone. Then she took the trembling hand of the young gladiator and she guided it to her throat. It was as though so great a woman, feared as she was by the unclean spirit, could not be dispatched unless she herself were willing. Perpetua made the ultimate choice, not between life and death, between allegiance to Jesus and allegiance to what Jesus called the world, which goes by many names down through history. And Perpetua was one of thousands upon thousands, we don't know how many, some historians argue upwards of millions of followers of Jesus who were brutally murdered in the first three centuries of the church. Historians puzzle at this systemic slaughter of the early Christians. Why was being a Christian a crime? I mean, after all, Christians were nonviolent up until the fourth century. The church fathers and mothers were basically unanimous that all violence, including even serving in the military, was incompatible with following Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. He taught his disciples to love their enemies, which made, for sure, any version of armed revolution off-limits to a disciple of Jesus. The New Testament itself said, honor the emperor. They paid their taxes, made their contribution to the common good. They were the first group to create a welfare net for the poor. They were the first to ever start hospitals in human history. Why were they such a threat to the Roman Empire? New Testament scholar and historian Gerald Sitzer, in his absolutely beautiful book, Water from a Deep Well, names four reasons that Christians were persecuted. This is his language, not mine. Number one, pagans viewed Christians with suspicion because they considered Christianity a strange and threatening foreign cult. As a general rule, Romans didn't like anything that wasn't Roman. The second century Roman writer Suetonius called the way a new and wicked superstition. The historian Tacitus called it a dangerous superstition. Dangerous because in the Roman worldview, if you don't honor the gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon, their volatility, they were not compassionate as Yahweh is, their volatility could bring down ruin upon your city or your state or the empire itself. 
Followers of the way were accused of being atheists because they refused to worship the pantheon of gods and goddesses. Again, in a polytheistic culture where that was nonsensical, that was just what you did. They were accused of being cannibals because they ate the body and drank the blood of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. They were accused of incest and orgies because they called each other brother and sister and their weekly gathering was called the love feast, which in the Romans' defense does sound a little kinky and it's why we've updated the language to gatherings, you know? But there was all sorts of bad information out there about the way or the church. Their public image was terrible and they were not all, not all incorrectly perceived as a threat to the Roman spiritual world. Any of this sound familiar? Number two, Christians practiced a way of life that passed implicit judgment on Roman society. They refused to even go into the temples, which was where most business and social life took place. Imagine you could never go to a birthday party or a celebration or a national holiday or even make a good business deal. They refused to participate in Roman games in the arena, which was the center of basically the political life. They would not go to the theater. They were radically different in their sexuality and that their sexual desire was channeled into the container of a loving, lifelong covenant of marriage between a man and a woman in an attempt to transform sexual desire from lust into love. But this did not go over well at all. Tacitus again called Christians haters of humankind because they refused to participate in Roman cultural norms. He said, quote, everything that we hold sacred they scorn, everything that we regard as taboo they permit. And as you know, it's basic psychology that when we are exposed to someone with a higher level of holiness than us, or another word for that is a higher level of a, a kind of moral beauty, we have two choices. Either we have to reject their moral vision of the good, or we have to feel bad about our own moral behavior and change. Most of us in our immaturity, and our human bent to pursue or choose pleasure over goodness and often pleasure over God. Choose the latter over the former. Third, Christian allegiance to Jesus as Lord threatened Rome's hegemony. Or as the award-winning historian Tom Holland, not a Christian, put it in his tome on the early church, distinctiveness in the age of an empire that proclaimed itself universal might well rank as defiance. Rome was very religious, and a wide variety of religions and spiritualities were not only tolerated, but celebrated as long as they served the imprints of the empire. If not, they were perceived as dangerous because, just follow the logic, if Jesus and his kingdom are the hope of the world, then Caesar and his empire are not. If Jesus is Lord, if he is the ultimate authority beyond under which all other lords must bow, then Caesar is the parody of which Jesus is the reality. Here's Sitzer. In Rome, in short, Rome tolerated religious diversity as long as the real religion of Rome was honored, which was Rome itself. Does this sound at all familiar to you? And number four, the early Christians viewed their faith as ultimate and exclusively true, which threatened the popular pluralism of the day. Again, nothing like our culture. In another story from the Acts of Christian Martyrs, the Roman proconsul of Smyrna called Polycarp, if you're familiar with his story, the leading kind of pastor of the region, an elderly man at the time, he called him the teacher of Asia, which is amazing, and then he called him the destroyer of our gods. 
The gospel was especially threatening to the Roman elite who did not see the gospel as compatible with Roman culture. Uh, in the West, in particular in America, there's this weird kind of romanticization of the ancient classical world, Greco-Roman world, in part because the founding fathers were so obsessed with kind of, as central to the Enlightenment was this kind of resurgence of the ancient world. It's why so much of the East Coast is built in like ancient Greek kind of architectural style. They were trying to kind of recreate ancient Rome. And now you have things like the Daily Stoic and kind of the return of Stoicism where Marcus Aurelius is like, you know, the greatest man who ever lived. And he he was wise and a great writer and hated Christians and systemically slaughtered them whenever he could. So there's this kind of, romantic, kind of romanticizing of the Roman Empire, and there were lots of great things about it, but it was brutal, in particular toward women and children and enslaved people. Human rights, and this is not opinion, this is fact, is a distinctively Christian concept with no antecedent in the pre-Christian world. The idea that the strong were going to be held accountable for their treatment of the weak, which again, we take for granted because of the gospel's impact on Western culture. This idea early on was a blow to the very foundation of Roman society. For all these reasons and more, followers of the way were slaughtered in mass, fed to beasts, cut down by gladiators, burned alive on pyres, tortured, even raped and abused. And yet here's the point I'm coming to. The church grew not in spite of martyrdom, but because of it. The early church father, Tertullian, famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He too was from Carthage, and he saw that the death of martyrs like Perpetua did nothing but pour gas on the fire that was the spread of the gospel. Now, this raises the follow-up question. Why would so many people from the Roman Empire join this new community of the way, knowing it would likely cause them pain, suffering, and possibly an ignominious death? What was it about this gospel, about this Jesus, this new community of the way that made hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands, if not more, choose death with Jesus over life with Rome? One answer is that it was the uniqueness of the way, a kind of their way of life together as a community of Jesus. Larry Hurtado, another award-winning historian of the early church, in his book, Destroyer of the Gods, argues that it wasn't Christians' relevance and relatability that made the gospel so attractive in the ancient world, but it was exactly their opposite, their distinctiveness and their difference. He lays out five kind of ways that set the early church apart from Roman culture. One, the church was multiracial, multiethnic. I've done this before. Two, the church was spread across socioeconomic lines, which was unheard of in the ancient world. It's a very high value of caring for the poor. Those with extra were expected to share with those with less. Three, it was resolute in its advocacy against infanticide and abortion. In a culture where infant exposure was widespread and very similar to abortion today, was socially acceptable even from people who were otherwise morally virtuous. Four, it was crystal clear in its vision of marriage and sexuality as between one man and one woman in marriage until death do us part, which, hard to believe, even more than today in a city like Portland, was radically out of step with the moral norms of that culture. And five, it was nonviolent. It refused to take up the sword. 
As you can imagine, this was a whole new vision of human flourishing. And in a way, it still is. Less radical today because of the gospel's impact on Western culture, but still, if you plot Hurtado's five distinctives onto the map of modern American politics, I think Tim Keller first made this point, the first two sound like liberal positions as they are dealing with race and class. The second two sound like conservative positions, and the last one doesn't sound like either, it just sounds un-American. There is no political party or intellectual ideology that I'm aware of that comes even close to Jesus' vision of life in the kingdom of love. These five and more made followers of the way like a lightning rod. Some people were just drawn into the orbit of this new community and way of life. And others, it just made them a scapegoat for all of their fear and anger and rage. Honestly, not much has changed. But another answer is that these early Christiani experienced something real. Their, their encounter with a risen Jesus in the spirit was not mass delusion. It was not an opioid for the masses. It was not a private therapeutic thing. They experienced the risen Jesus and life with him in the kingdom of God. And they were willing to die, often at a brutal way, rather than give up life in the kingdom of Jesus. They had to pick between life with Jesus in the kingdom and death and life in the Roman Empire and live long and prosper. They chose Jesus time after time after time because whatever they were experiencing with him was better than anything Rome had to offer. And people who are not afraid of death are a threat to the power brokers of the age because they can do extraordinary things with their life. Today, followers of Jesus are still killed for their faith, which is easy for us to forget in the comfort of the West. Some estimate as many as 150,000 Christians are killed every year around the world, mostly in the Muslim world, but also in North Korea, in China, in corners of the Hindu world, even in corners of the Buddhist world. Right now, our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are literally underground in hiding. Many of them, as we speak, are dying. Lord, have mercy. Here in the West, which is, again, built around what Yuval Harari, leading atheist of our day, calls a Christian myth, human rights. We do not, by the grace of God, face the threat of martyrdom. But there is, and this is way, 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 way down the level of intensity, there is a rising hostility toward us. We're not facing a Roman Empire, but remember, the nature of empire has changed in the modern digital world. As Right after World War II, Churchill said, the empires of the future will be empires of the mind. He rightly saw over the horizon at kind of the beginning of the Cold War and communism versus the West that the wars of the future would be less about territory and more about ideology. And while thankfully the worst thing I've had to deal with you know, as far as persecution is, is just really nasty people on Instagram who hate me and hurt my feelings, still we all face moments of decision where in a similar though much less serious way to Perpetua, we will have to choose between Jesus and the world. But listen, what if this isn't something to fear? What if this isn't bad? What if this is good news? What if there is, and this is hard for even me to swallow, but what if there is a rich gift waiting for us in this new cultural moment of a rising hostility? Gerald Sitzer writes this, persecution, suffering, and death are at the heart of the Christian message. 
We will never understand Christian spirituality, what it is and what makes it unique unless we grasp the significance of martyrdom. The early Christians died because they confessed Jesus as Lord. His lordship challenged all other ultimate claims on their lives, wealth, status, power, and Rome itself. When forced to choose, they chose to follow Jesus no matter what the price. I mean, what was Jesus' central image for discipleship? A cross. Take up your cross, a symbol of a shameful death. Jesus taught his disciples, woe to you when all people speak well of you. So if everybody likes you, what are you doing wrong? And he also said, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Not because you were just a jerk, on his account. We have to clarify that. And then he said, when we are persecuted, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Counterintuitive as it sounds, all of the greats attest there is a secret joy in any kind of persecution, whether it is literal or just emotional. Paul called it participation in the sufferings of Christ. He said it's like you get a deeper level of intimacy with Jesus when you experience a taste, even if it's very small, of the suffering he underwent to love us in our sin and our death. And if you never taste that, then you kind of always miss out on that level of intimacy. And if the point of life, again, hard for us as Portlanders to imagine this, but if the point of life is not pleasure, if it's not happiness, if it's not to feel good all of the time, if it's not a career that is up and to the right, if it's not to be thought of as cool or well-dressed or sophisticated or enlightened, but if rather it is to deepen our intimacy with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit through surrender, if it's the healing and the formation of our soul, our whole person into people of agape, self-giving love, if the greatest joy there is in the universe is the creator of all that is, God himself, then Jesus' logic is perfectly sound. When people revile you, make fun of you, say nasty things about you, demote you, whatever, rejoice and be glad. But is there even more than that? As Paul writes, the love of Christ compels us. So as we receive that love, we can't help but give it away. So as we end our teaching series, our last question is very simple. How do we preach the gospel in a culture where the gospel itself is perceived by some, especially those in power and elites, as bad news, not good news, as a threat, not a welcome? Well, let's end with Peter's invitation here, if your Bible is still open in your lap, writing to Christians across the empire who were facing persecution in droves. Listen to his word, and let's just work through this kind of line by line. Verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you. Notice his pastoral heart. He's not angry or anxious. He's just calling his church up into discipleship. As foreigners and exiles, two metaphors for our life, both mean our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God, not any nation state. And, and this is harder for some of us to swallow, 
Our primary family identity is in the family of God, not any ethnicity or family of origin. That doesn't erase our ethnicity any more than it erases that I'm a comer and an American, but it puts it in its proper place below God and his family. Followers of Jesus were called a new race by their Roman critics because arguably for the first time in human history, here was a a movement, spiritual or otherwise, that was spread across the human boundaries of tribe and tongue and nation. As one ancient writer put it, every foreign country is a fatherland to them and every fatherland is foreign. Peter goes on to say, I urge you, I call you up as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Don't give in to your primal base appetites, what the New Testament writers call your flesh. Don't be, as Paul writes, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. These sinful desires, which are in every single one of us and don't go away the moment we name Jesus as Lord, these bodily appetites, which are mostly good desires that have been perverted out of context for lust or sexual pleasure without boundaries or greed or consumption without boundaries or prejudice or bigotry or tribalism or domination over others in the name of fear. These desires that are in all of us, whether we're honest about it or not, they wage war. They slaughter, they murder the life of our soul, our sense of a self that is integrated and whole and at peace in God. Instead, listen to the counter call. Live such good lives among the pagans. Live such good lives. The word good is kalas in Greek. It can be translated beautiful or fair or even in one lexicon I read, shapely. Live in a, such a beautiful, live such a beautiful and compelling life among others. Among, notice that preposition there, among. Not separated in a compound off-grid in the wilderness, which last year was a little bit tempting for an introvert like me, but right in the thick of it, shoulder to shoulder with the pagans. Again, not a derogatory label in the ancient world. Roman spirituality, self-identified as pagan that though they accuse you of doing wrong, though they accuse you of cannibalism or atheism or incest or uh, when the Visigoths sacked Rome, the end of the Roman Empire, you made with your Christianity, you made the gods angry with us. Or today, though they accuse you of bigotry because you hold to Jesus' teachings on whatever, in particular sexuality or gender, though they accuse you of being on the, quote, wrong side of history, though they accuse you of being bad for the nation, not good for it, though they accuse you of being stupid or uneducated or somehow at odds with science, they may see your good deeds. Notice, not they may hear your sermons. They may follow your Instagram. No, they may see your good deeds. See not just what you say, that's very important, we spent the last month on that, but also how you live and what you do, especially for those who Jesus called the least of these, as you just quietly defy the brokenness of our age and serve and do good and love. And, last line, glorify God on the day he visits us, as what is first perceived to be bad news turns out to actually be very good news. Of course, those of you familiar with the New Testament will recognize that Peter is just riffing here on Jesus' 
invitation in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's almost like Peter was a disciple of Jesus or something. That was, it's okay to laugh. I know this is really serious, but it's a help. Notice both Jesus and Peter in a time when they were both facing death show no anger, no outrage, no fear, no despair, no raging against the liberals or the conservatives or whatever. Just a loving, bold, confident invitation to live in a way that begs the question. The call of Jesus isn't just to preach the good news, it's to become good news people, to embody the gospel of the kingdom of God, to become people who are living joyfully in the kingdom of God with Jesus right in the middle of whatever empire we find ourselves in, national or ideological or both. The early Christians did this and it changed the world forever. The way exploded from 120 hiding in a back room in Jerusalem to under the influence of the spirit, arguably the most influential movement in the history of the world. Michael Green, a famous scholar from Oxford, in his book Evangelism in the Early Church, makes the case that 80% or more of, quote, evangelism in the early church was done by ordinary Christians not Christian celebrities or pastors or evangelists like Billy Graham, ordinary Christians just explaining their life to their family and friends who were asking, why? Why do you do that? Why? It was baffling. Why do you as a man honor your wife like that? Why do you, like, why, why, why? Living in such a way that people were drawn to the goodness in Peter's language and Jesus the beauty, the moral beauty of their lives. Not the perfection, that's not on offer, but goodness that is. They could not help but ask questions. Is your life beautiful? Not perfect, mine is definitely not, but good. Do people ever ask you, why? Alan Kreider, another historian, in his book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, writes about how pretty early on, for sure by the second century, and this is hard for us to imagine, but it's very common in much of the Middle East today, Christians made their Sunday worship gathering a secret, and uh, they would not like invite their non-believing friends to it, because if a non-Christian came in, sometimes they would come to faith in Jesus and join the community, but a lot of the time they would go tell the imperial magistrate and they would slaughter, come in and imprison or slaughter the church. So they had to keep their Sunday gathering a secret. There was no sound system. There was no like cool pink lighting, none of that. It was like literally a lot of it was underground and catacombs and such. But this created a fascinating dynamic where non-Christians could not look at a Christian worship service and be drawn to that. All they could look at was Christians, not private life, but their public life. They could just look at how they did money, how they did sex, how they did family, how they did marriage, how they did relationships, how they did speech, how they did politics. They could just see the public kind of lifestyle of the church and that was what drew them in like a moth to the flame. 
He writes, it was not Christian worship that attracted outsiders, it was Christians who attracted them. And outsiders found the Christians attractive because of their Christian lifestyle and practices which their spiritual formation and worship, or Sunday time, had formed. Meaning it wasn't a cool church service with pink lights and good music and a kind of TED talk for Jesus in the middle and a well-curated Instagram feed or in vogue social justice initiatives or critiquing the right thing about politics. It was Christians. It was their way of life together in community, their love for one another, their thick webbing of brother and sister and family life, their joy under suffering, their generosity, their sacrifice and love and peace and serenity and wisdom and perseverance. The word used for this in the New Testament is the word witness. Jesus famously used it in Acts chapter one. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in all Judea and Samaria. It's come to the north and the south and past the ethnic line of Judaism and then to the ends of the earth, to Portland, Oregon on the west coast of another continent across the ocean. Used as a verb, the word witness literally means someone who sees or experiences something very important. Used as a verb, to witness or to bear witness, it means to tell others about what you saw or experienced. That's it. I love that. We're not salespeople, we're witnesses. Like one of the worst experiences of my life ever. I was, I was in sales for two weeks. It's a long story. It's a brutal story. I was desperate for a job in college. There was literally, this is back in the day, an ad in the newspaper from this knife company called Cutco. And it promised, you know, make $10,000 a month or whatever. And I was desperate. And I could not get through college. And so I signed up. And if you know anything about me, I am the farthest thing. Like my brother is in sales and is crushing it. I am so not that person. I'm like, this is a thing. I'm not a salesperson at all. <laughs> we are not salespeople, we're witnesses. Our job is not to sell people on the gospel. It's not to close the deal with the right technique of emotional manipulation. It's not a bait and a switch. Nor are we politicians. Our job isn't to seize power for the gospel. It is just to bear witness to what we have seen and what we have experienced with Jesus in the kingdom. In word and in deed in the power of a transformed and yet transforming life, not just as individuals, but in our life together as a community. Some people will be drawn to our witness, like one wandering in the dark is drawn to light. Others will go in the opposite direction. Mortimer Arias, a Bolivian scholar who did ministry under communist persecution, put it this way, the kingdom of God is God's new order. Since its manifestation in Jesus Christ, human orders now belong to the old order. Precisely because the new order of God is a threat to any established order, the arrival of the kingdom forcing its way through the old order produces a more intense reaction. It attracts and repels at the same time. The church grows and is persecuted at the same time. But that's okay, because we're not responsible for outcomes. People have agency and free will and human dignity. Salvation is some kind of a mysterious mix that I for sure don't want to come down on that is some, some amalgamation of human choice and the work of God's spirit and more. Our job is not to save people or to seize power over people. It's just to bear witness. 
the Professor Lee Camp in his book, Scandalous Witness, A Little Political Manifesto for Christians, which by the way is the best thing I've ever come across on Christians and politics, writes, while our task is not to make America great again, or importantly we would say usher in some kind of progressive utopia, and it is, it is not to run the world, it is nonetheless a grand and majestic calling to the world, to bear witness to the world, even to the powers of the world, what the world was intended to be and what it shall be when the consummation of the end of history comes. Context, he means to bear witness with our life, not just our speech. But in Greek, the word witness, and many of you know this, is martus, which is where we get the word martyr. martyr. That's not a coincidence, by the way. It's because in the first centuries, a witness and a martyr were virtually synonymous. For us, while literal death, thank God, is not a threat, there is a kind of death involved with bearing witness to the gospel in our city and our time. Maybe that's a death to your reputation as cool or sophisticated or even as good. Maybe it's a death to other people's moral view of you or a death to relationships, people that don't want anything to do with you. Once they find out you are a Christian, people will cut you off. There's a possible death to your career ambitions. Increasingly, more and more jobs are incompatible with allegiance to Jesus. And in more and more companies, what is required to kind of move up the corporate ladder, I talk to you, I hear this all the time, is incompatible with allegiance to Jesus. But as hard as this is, it is a small price to pay it is nothing compared to that paid by Perpetua and millions of our brothers and sisters down through history and around the world right now as we speak. It is a small price to pay, not because it's small, but because it's small compared to the joy of knowing Christ. As Paul said, of all he lost in becoming a witness to the gospel, and he lost a lot, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I don't know that I could actually say this. I want to participate in Jesus' life. That sounds, sign me up. But the cross comes before the resurrection. Good Friday before Easter. Death to self before life in the kingdom. And it's simple math, pros and cons. Just get out a piece of paper this afternoon. Line up reputation, pleasure, money, a rising career path, whatever it is, against Christ and life in his kingdom. Doesn't even compare. So we come, not only to the end of our practice, but to the end of practicing the way, our four year, well, was four year, now five year, thank you, COVID, journey of kind of spiritual formation as a church. As you know, we defined practicing the way of Jesus as apprenticing under Jesus, as living as an apprentice or a disciple or a student or a practitioner of Jesus. To apprentice under Jesus, and we've said this a thousand times, is to organize your life around three goals. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did. Or put another way with a little more nuance, do what he would do if he were you. On the other hand, or on one hand, 
This is not a three-step formula. So this isn't like follow the thing. It's not a linear progression. On the other hand, there is kind of a progression that you see with the original disciples in the New Testament of kind of Jesus saying, come, just be with me. Follow me around, sit under my teaching, eat meals with me, share life with me. And then in time, what happens? They become very slowly and with very three steps forward, two steps back, they start to become more like this Jesus. And then at the end, years into it, what does Jesus say? Now, go, you go, and you make disciples. In a similar way, we started practicing the way with practices like Sabbath and silence and solitude and prayer and fasting, which are all designed to, not that it's this simple, but really designed to be with Jesus in the digital age, in a noisy city, in a busy career, life or family or with little kids running around all of the time, every way. Just how do we be with Jesus? We then moved on to practices like dealing with your past and discovering your identity and calling and naming your stage of apprenticeship designed to become like Jesus, real deep inner work. And it was intentional that we saved practices like preaching the gospel and our next and final practice, demonstrating the gospel. We saved for last because you cannot give away what you do not possess. And we had to let Jesus do a work in us before he could do a work through us. Not that we've arrived by any stretch of the imagination, I sure have not. Especially after all of 2020, a lot of us feel like we regressed a bit in our spiritual formation, that's okay, we're human. But there comes a time when the call of Jesus is upon us to do what he did. Not convert people to Christianity, but to make disciples of Jesus. As I come to the end of my time, as the pastor for teaching and vision or whatever at our church. I am not, if you know me, sentimental at all by personality, but I am just a scotch lately. It was 18 years ago this June that my wife and I moved to Portland to plant what is now our church. We have so many memories in this city. Early this morning I got up and went to this park downtown where within a week or so of moving here, we started a little prayer meeting. There were two of us, my wife and I, and then this guy randomly met who lived in a condo downtown started coming and our church grew 50% in size. It was amazing. <laughs> there were three of us. And I went back there this morning and just sat and just my heart, the dominant emotion of my heart was just gratitude at the faithfulness of God. And a lot has changed in the last kind of almost two decades now. And the rising hostility to the gospel is real. It's not a figment of your imagination, that's real. We're living through a defining moment in the Western church and in Western culture. Similar to the fall of the Roman Empire, a lot of very smart people would argue our culture is in decline and in disarray and the church, sadly, is full of so much corruption and compromise. The only kind of church that will survive the years and decades to come, and I don't mean this in a fear-mongering way, just in an honest way, the only kind that will survive is one that is deeply committed to following Jesus together in love, that will not yield to the left or the right, and their anti-God ideologies, even if they sometimes use the language of God as a cover-up for rebellion against God. And at the same time, will not yield to fear or despair, but will open its heart to suffering love. Over the last five years in particular, 
I've done my very best, and you all know I have made tons of blunders along the way in all of my humanity. But I've done my very best to, along with our leaders, pastor you into a way of life based on the template that was set down by Jesus himself that is conducive to facilitate deep inner healing and the transformation of your whole person, your soul, into love. Our rule of life as a church is not a formula because, again, we're not in control of our spiritual formation. And spiritual life isn't something we do, it's a gift we receive. It's a way of life that if you give yourself to it over a long period of time, will let you deepen your surrender to God and let Jesus deepen his healing of your soul as you make your journey into God. In this, my last kind of sermon for this season, and it will be a while before we're back from sabbatical, I don't have some final like word from God for you. I feel that the Future Church series we did in the spring was kind of my last kind of major deposit in our community. But let me just end with my prayer and my desire for you. May you stay true to following Jesus and his way no matter what comes. Guard your heart for out of it flow all of the issues of life. Paul said to the Ephesian elders before his departure, and to clarify, I'm not planning to go to Jerusalem to be arrested and put to death by Caesar, but just planning to go to Hawaii for a little while, all right? (laughs) But I've been thinking a lot about his closing charge. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three days, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. God willing, we will always be in relationship. But our time as a family to serve as point leaders in our church has come to an end. Bridgetown's next step is to kind of build on the foundation of practicing the way, not set it aside, but build on top of it with a whole new chapter of our story together as a church. That's beautiful. But I feel a deep sense of call and even obedience toward Jesus to give myself more fully to this work, not less. So it's time for me to be done in my role and our dear friend Tyler, whom I love and respect more than you could possibly know, to take the lead. Following Jesus alongside all of you in this room has been one of the great singular joys of my life. Every morning right now, and again, I'm getting a bit emotional, I'm just sitting in prayer of just full of gratitude in my heart for you and for what God has done in us. I love you so much. Not that I'm your father, Um, some of you are old enough to be my father, but in the same way that, Peter, our elder, is laughing, (laughs) but in the same way that when your children grow up and move out, your relationship to them as a parent changes, and you're not as as close, but they still have your heart until death. You're in my heart, and you always will be. I am no longer responsible for you, thank God, but... (laughs) which I'm sure is how all parents feel at some point. But like a parent of an adult child, it is my desire to always be in relationship with you. May God give you courage and peace in the years to come. 
courage to stay true to Jesus no matter what. Few and God willing, none of us will ever face martyrdom, but all of us will face moments of decision. Some of you this week, some of you today, where you will be forced, where we will be all forced to choose between Jesus and the world, his teachings and the ideologies of our time, the joy of intimacy with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, or the fleeting pleasures of the body. May God give you courage and love to choose Jesus every time. But may God also give you peace Stay faithful to Jesus, not from a place of fear or outrage or even depression, but of serenity and calm and love. As Saint Seraphim said, acquire the spirit of peace and a thousand souls around you will be saved. Our city is in desperate need of a spirit of peace, of a church, of a family, of brothers and sisters who are radiant with the light and the love of God. May you walk worthy of the calling that you have received. And whatever comes, whether all of the culture war stuff like calms down or ramps up, it's going to be okay. It is. You don't have to worry at all because we are safe in the kingdom with Jesus. Nothing can take him or that and that bedrock peace at the base of our soul. Nothing can strip that away from us. And besides, this life is fleeting. If you missed it, you're going to die you're actually, I believe biologically, you're technically dying right now as we speak. <laughs> Eternity is what matters. America is not the hope of the world. The kingdom of God is. All empires fall. Ours, I think, is as we speak. And that's just fine. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that is here and is coming. There's no COVID-19, no disease or death or suicide bombings or war or hate or partisan politics, a kingdom where, as Isaiah put it, sorrow and sighing and flee will flee away. That kingdom's not just in the future, it's here now in the present, and you're a part of it. You're a part of a new humanity that God ever so slowly is forming into a community of love and of light. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Repent and believe it. Reorder your whole life around it as ultimate reality. Bear witness to it in word and in deed, in private and in public, in all of your integrated life. And whatever comes, know that there is nothing that compares to the joy of knowing Christ. Mm -hmm.